This is a podcast by The Straits Times. Hi, and welcome to Health Check. I'm Joyce Steele, a senior health correspondent with The Straits Times. The Institute of Mental Health, or IMH in Singapore, recently started adopting trauma-informed care on both organizational and clinical levels. While it is an approach that considers the detrimental impact of trauma on a person, a child's adverse past experiences affect the way he or she sees and responds to his or her world. So studies have shown that adverse childhood experiences can significantly increase the risk of chronic health conditions and health risk behaviours later in life. So in trauma-informed care, you would ask the patient, what happened to you instead of what's wrong with you? And this thinking is actually something we can apply in our everyday lives. To tell us more about this approach and how it's being used to support children facing trauma is Dr. Anne-Marie Abudul Castro, the project lead of the trauma-informed care approach at IMH. She's the principal clinical psychologist at the hospital's Department of Developmental Psychiatry and an accredited play therapist. Hi, Dr. Emery. So tell us, what is trauma-informed care and why should the general public be aware of it? So trauma-informed care is an organizational and cultural therapeutic approach and model to managing and understanding trauma. Trauma is very pervasive and widespread. And through our neuroscience, we understand that it uh, damages the brain. And so we have to beware of how we manage it. It's been around for 30 years, 40 years in other countries, but it's fairly new for Singapore. Uh, It hasn't been highlighted here. And perhaps this is going to be the first time that uh, we are adopting a a trauma-informed care and approach system for a whole hospital in Singapore. Okay, so maybe you can tell us a little bit about the, the background to it. The research in the last 10 to 15 years has been exponential. Uh, it's taken them the best of 30 years to formulate a trauma-informed system and care. So why now in Singapore was mainly because I had come to understand and uh, had done work in trauma-informed care in South Africa. Our psychologists and our allied health uh, care professionals have worked with trauma models, but not in terms of the approach, the holistic approach of trauma-informed care. So that is the difference, and that's why it is a new approach for us. There's one other reason, and that is because the one model we're using has not been used before. It's just started in the USA. That is, they took a previous trauma-informed care model, and um, they have now put it into an online e-learning program and updated it according to organizations in business and all the systems, various systems in a community, like law enforcement, like juvenile justice systems. What are the common types of trauma that you see in children at IMH these days? So uh, trauma is not specific to an age group, but it has affected the youth the young children in terms of witnessing family violence recently. So family violence has been, there's been an increase in that. It's also had an impact on children from a physical abuse perspective. There's been a lot of physical abuse. Uh, We've also found from the studies done in Singapore that there's been an increase in neglect, maybe abandonment as well, and an increase in self-harm in children as an impact of this trauma. So we're seeing the mental health issues come through from these actual 
traumatic situations. Of course, there's divorce, uh, which impacts children, and that is affected quite substantially in Singapore, as well as often not emphasized enough, and that is the death of a grandparent for in a child's life. The death of a grandparent or a close relative, even a pet, the loss of a school friend, not through death necessarily, but through moving away or changing schools, can have a, a consequence on a child. And sometimes that's impacted by other issues, and then it combines and uh, exacerbates the situation. So how can we identify a traumatized child? For very young children, say zero to to six years of age, uh, those children are likely to be fretful and cry. They might have sleep disturbances. They may be clingy. uh, They might have issues with eating, not wanting to eat, and, of course, show signs of physical uh, stomach uh, problems. For a slightly older child, uh, there are issues such as concerns about separation. They might be withdrawn. They might not play the way they used to play. And if they do play, they might play with trauma uh, style of playing, trauma reenactment, and replaying the same theme over and over again. They might lose interest in some of the issues that they had enjoyed doing before. And withdraw, not be as affectionate, be scared at night, not want to be alone in a dark room. With teenagers, we may see there's a tendency to engage in risky behavior. They might try some substance abuse. They could also act out with uh, sexually as well, be very angry. And there are overlaps in terms of some of these signs and symptoms their overlap, such as the child might be numb and not showing feelings. They might be very shaky and nervous. They may be scared and not want to be alone. Dr. Emery, you mentioned trauma play. So what, what exactly is that? So trauma plays when a child actually sometimes can't play at all. So they may just sit there and stare at the toys, uh, maybe turn their back to the therapist, uh, possibly not show any interest at all in the play material. So in trauma-informed care, what happens sometimes is the parent, when a child is not responding how they might expect the child to respond, they may get angry. And then they might blame or criticize the child or use language such as, well, what are you doing? Why aren't you playing? What's wrong with you? And that just re-traumatizes the child further. When they do play, a parent might notice that the child will use the same toy over and over again may enact a similar scene, uh, reenact um, what happened, say, in a home where there was some abuse. If a child is playing, for example, with a doll's house, they might decorate the room in such a way. Or they could, for example, put many predators in the house, which is not normally where you'd have dinosaurs and spiders. And uh, so they show and express fear and anger in how they play, how they play with cars. And if it's an accident, how they might play with the doll's house if they're expressing what happened in, let's say, at home with them. They may also show trauma reenactment and play out the exact scene metaphorically. So they might use perhaps animals to show how one animal is hitting or beating or abusing the other animal. They may show sexuality scenes as well. So in trauma-informed care, so 
you know, what does it look like, right? So can you give us an example? First of all, um, it is an approach by all the adults and carers in the child's life to be compassionate, to be kind, and not have a punitive approach to the child. So at uh, IMH, for example, uh, in the inpatient uh, care unit, uh, we are helping and becoming trauma-informed so that appropriate language is used instead of language that is blaming or harsh or uh, the child might feel rejected because they're self-harming. You know, it might be uh, that one of the staff say, why are you doing that? What's wrong with you? Uh, it's not necessary to harm yourself. Stop it. And uh, the, the child feels misunderstood and not understood. And it's rather to use language that is inquiring, that is curious, that helps the child tell their story, like what happened to you? And how come what happened is uh, allowing you to feel the need to hurt yourself? Because with the trauma theory, we know what trauma does to the brain. So the child might not be able to make the decisions they want to make. They might not be able to control their impulses. They might not be able to regulate their emotions appropriately. And then what happens is they need to harm themselves or act out uh, behaviorally. And we see that difference in boys and girls. Um, a girl might internalize and become withdrawn and depressed, and a male child might act out and become very, very aggressive. And then, as mentioned previously, indulge in, in high-risk adventure sports or high-risk behavior. So it's to do with the language and the attitude. Yes, and the language and the attitude, that's one thing, but it is therapeutic because we have community meetings. Um, there are group meetings for the self-model, which looks into the safety, emotions, loss, and future, and explores the narrative, what happened to the child. It's a very explorative way of finding out and a very direct and efficient way of finding out what might be the underlying trauma? A little different from um, filling in a questionnaire, being asked very direct questions, which was previously the case, then blaming the child for what happened. So it is an approach, it is a culture, it's a way of doing things, and also we need the continuity of care. So if our staff in the inpatient ward are um, coping well with trauma-informed care and practicing it, then in the outpatient unit, we need to be doing the same. What we're talking about now is a whole hospital, a whole organization approach. And this means that we do the same. We use this approach with each other, our colleagues, the staff, and management. And so we have the community meetings whereby we have a chance to express how we're feeling. We bring the volume down of our stress. Every day we have a community meeting. Every time we have one, we bring the temperature down of our emotions because we have a chance to say to our colleague, um, I'm feeling angry today or I'm not feeling great today in the community meeting and feel understood. When we were in America and we went into some of the organizations that were very trauma-informed, there's a very different atmosphere, um, an atmosphere of serenity, of calm, of collaboration, a sense of community, really a sense of nonviolence, in the sense of not bullying, in the sense of not being too authoritarian, violence in the sense of ignoring somebody 
what we found and when we visited the organizations, and I've actually revisited some, uh, the moment you walk in, you just have this feeling, this empathy, this feeling, I'm accepted here, my voice will be heard. There's a sense of kindness. And this fits in with IMH's inspirations. Find us on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or via the Google Voice Assistant and Amazon Alexa-enabled devices. And now back to our podcast episode. Can you offer some tips, you know, for parents on how to deal with a traumatized child at home? Yes. So at home, put safety first. Safety is so important that the child feels secure and safe. If the child doesn't want to be alone that night or wants the light on, it's no good saying you're too big now. Why do you want the light on? That is going to really upset the young person. To ensure that there's predictability and routine, to really help the child to re-engage with friends and to socialize again well, to keep a child and children away from the media away from the news, the repetitive news of disasters as we're experiencing now is actually having an effect, I think, throughout the the community at the moment. When we speak to colleagues and friends, we realize that people are being affected by distant issues. The Ukrainian war, for example, the natural disasters. So do you suggest that, you know, parents don't talk to their child about such events or just talk to them briefly about it? Honesty is very important, and children respond very well to facts. What isn't so helpful is the repetition of it and the chaos and the exaggeration as well. So explain briefly, honestly, but appropriately for the child's age, not too much, and certainly just enough that the child uh, is not left wondering because that can cause further stress as well. In trauma-informed care, right, I read that the key is to actually ask the child what happened to you, right, instead of telling or saying what's wrong with you. But if you ask the child what happened to you and you get no response, right, you know, how do you proceed from there? Um, it's the child's choice. And we need to try to encourage that empowerment of the child. That they feel that they don't have to answer. They don't have to do anything in a way that they feel that they don't want to do at a particular time. So just one example of an actual case that I had. He hardly spoke. He's, he's well over 18 years of age. Um, but he would just draw. He would doodle and draw and anything he wanted to say, he would um, do by using a pen and paper. He said the most beneficial thing he found about therapy was that he could come to therapy with an idea. He might not say anything but that he always left having learned something more about himself. And he got through his trauma in that way. He arrived with uh, nobody knowing what was happening. He was just very depressed. So the symptoms were depression. And through the, the drawing and the writing and the exploration, it turned out that actually it had been the loss of the grandfather that had caused depression and that caused him to feel numb and unresponsive. And he drew pictures in which he discovered for himself that that is what had been worrying him, unresolved grief. And he found the manner of using self, the community meetings, and the way the therapy was done very, very helpful. I see. That's interesting. So he wasn't aware of the trauma that he had. 
Not at all. Couldn't speak about it, didn't know, never knew what it was. He said it had been going on since the loss of his grandfather in the end when we discovered what it was. And um, look, it can be other things as well. We know that. But this was one of the main issues that um, he was affected by. You know, sometimes a parent might say, well, uh, they weren't very close. Uh, he or she wasn't very close to the grandmother or the grandfather, or we hardly saw each other. But when there is a loss, like bereavement or a death, it's not always the person, but the shock to a young person or child that something has changed, the reality of a death, a reality that something's not going to be there anymore. There's real sense of loss. So it works on different levels. Right. That's interesting. So actually, before trauma-informed care, how would a child like this person be treated? Well, there are other therapies that are good therapies, but they just don't go as far as this. So yes, there would be some uh, very good help, but as mentioned previously, the therapy would have been possibly structured to 8 or 12 or 16 sessions sometimes. It would be a more structured approach. There might have been a more cognitive approach uh, using more dialogue than maybe the creative expression, uh, expressive therapies. And then so often the child might go back to school and then everything falls apart again. There are trauma reminders that haven't been dealt with. There's one child in which trauma had occurred in the public toilet at school. And every time she went back to school, then uh, she saw the door handle, she saw the door, she had to pass that room. So although we work with the schools and agencies, they're not necessarily trauma-informed. So they might help. You might be able to have said to them in the past, please, can you cover the door handle or remove the door or paint the door or do something else? There's some exposure therapy. But then the actual idea of trauma-informed in terms of giving the child a voice, understanding not to punish or reject or blame the child, maybe not say something like, that's a silly thing, it's just a door, don't let it worry you, things like that. So there would be no continuity of the care. One in three children in Singapore have had some trauma experience. Uh, 72% in the USA have had trauma experiences, severe trauma experiences. So what we're saying with trauma-informed care is sensitivity to your staff member, to your colleague next to you. Just bear it in mind. Right. It sounds like something that can be adopted by companies, parents, by everyone in general. Yes, and very, very important in our juvenile justice system and our law enforcement, especially because first responders, for example, have first contact with that child and doctors in the clinics and the nurses in the clinics. So people can already begin the process. The moment you ask what happened to you and you're willing to listen and be curious, that is the first step to recovery of trauma. Oh, somebody's noticed. Oh, I'm being heard. I think somebody's understanding. Now, imagine a child feeling like that for once and then suddenly having their hopes dash because the very next person they meet is saying, oh, that's silly. You must just go to school tomorrow. It doesn't matter. You'll get over it, etc." Yes, trauma is affected by pragmatism of a culture. People respond differently. We need to understand that it's very important and that it doesn't affect every child the same way. There are cultural differences, personality differences, gender differences, and how people respond to trauma. Um, so it's not that I think the trauma-informed care, uh, trauma care process is saying this is the only way to do it. 
their many ways and uh, many practical ways. So what we're doing with trauma-informed care in Singapore, uh, especially at IMH, is people making it their own, the staff, the parents, the children. In fact, the child, the case I was telling you about a little while ago, the one who did the drawing of the pictures and lost his grandfather, his mum also wrote, and she just said, thank you for all the help. And she said, please tell parents just to listen, listen, listen to the heart of their child. Right. So, uh, Dr. Emery, thanks a lot for your time today and for all the tips and for helping us understand what is trauma-informed care. Thank you so much for having me and I hope it's been helpful. Well, that's a wrap for Health Check, a podcast series by The Straits Times. Don't forget to subscribe to us for free on your favourite smartphone apps, Apple Podcasts, Spotify or Google Podcasts. Search for Straits Times Health Check, like us and give us a rating. Thank you for listening. That was a podcast by The Straits Times. Send your feedback to podcast at sph.com.sg. Find us on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or via the Google Voice Assistant and Amazon Alexa-enabled devices. For more podcasts by The Straits Times, The Business Times, and Money FM 89.3, you can also download the audio by SPH app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O.